Good evening, this is Rob McClure bringing you your local news live from the WORT studios on Bedford Street in downtown Madison. Here are the headlines for this evening. Wisconsin's Republican lawmakers are floating a bill that would allow parents to opt their children out of gender identity and sexual orientation programs in schools. The provision would require school administrators to send out a written notice of such programs to parents. A student wouldn't be required to participate if their parent or guardian submits a written request to opt out of the programming. The bill will apply to both public and independent charter schools. The bill, which will be before the Assembly Education Committee tomorrow at 10 a.m., currently has 11 co-sponsors, all of whom are Republicans. Incidentally, Democrats on the Education Committee staged a walkout yesterday over their Republican colleagues' refusal to wear masks. The move comes just a few weeks after Senator Andre Jock, a Republican from De Pere, was hospitalized with COVID. Just a few days prior to that hospitalization, Jock participated in a meeting of the Joint Education Committee while unmasked. According to the Wisconsin Examiner, Democratic members of the Education Committee weren't informed that Jock had potentially exposed them to COVID. The fight around the chair of Wisconsin's Natural Resources Board continues. A Dane County Circuit Court judge has barred legislative Republicans and a hunting group from joining a lawsuit that seeks to remove board chair Frederick Prane. Prane, a Scott Walker appointee, refuses to step down from the board despite his term having expired in May. The state of Wisconsin is flush with cash and that cash needs to be spent. Wisconsin Public Radio reports that the state has until 2024 to allocate all of its federal coronavirus relief aid and until 2026 to spend those billions of dollars. Most of that funding, which came from the Federal CARES Act and American Rescue Plan, is already earmarked for specific purposes. Broadly, that's split between two categories, economic recovery and public health. A GOP attorney who worked as an official in the Trump administration appears to be working on a state investigation into the results of the 2020 presidential election. News agencies are reporting that Andrew Kloster appeared to have authored a letter sent to county election clerks this Monday. That letter was signed by Michael Gableman, the lead investigator into the election investigation ordered by Republican Speaker Robin Voss. Kloster was an election observer in Green Bay during last year's election. City officials and poll workers say Kloster screamed at election workers who were counting ballots that night. Kloster and Gableman have both claimed that the 2020 election was stolen. Dane County is distributing nearly $5 million in relief aid to 183 local nonprofits. According to County Executive Joe Parisi's office, that funding is being allocated in grants ranging from $2,500 to $50,000. The grants, funded via the Federal American Rescue Plan, are intended to offset losses or increased expenses due to the COVID-19 pandemic. Madison's Audubon Society says it's once again safe to feed local birds. That message comes as reports of a mysterious illness afflicting Wisconsin's birds has begun to wane. 
The Wisconsin State Journal reports that the primary symptoms of that illness, swollen and crusty eyes, are associated with a variety of avian diseases. The exact cause and source of the illness, which began popping up across the country this past summer, is still a mystery. And now for your daily COVID-19 numbers via the Wisconsin Department of Health Services. The state's rolling seven-day average of new cases currently stands at 1,864 cases per day. Meanwhile, new COVID cases continue to strain the state's hospitals. As of yesterday, the state's seven-day moving average of hospitalized COVID patients stood at 1,048. Nearly 91% of the state's hospital beds are currently in use. Those are the headlines. Now on to the rest of the day's top stories. State lawmakers are currently weighing a bill that would make financial info on Wisconsin schools more easily accessible. The bill's, author, the bill's authors argue that transparency will help the state's schools operate more efficiently and effectively. Our producer Jonah Chester fills us in on the details. School funding in Wisconsin is complicated. In the past several decades, local school districts have turned to referendums to meet their financial needs. They also receive funds from the state and the federal government, most recently in the form of federal coronavirus relief aid. It's a lot of money going in and out of the door, and a lot to keep track of. Now, Wisconsin's lawmakers are considering a bill that seeks to simplify tracking that money. The bill, which was before an assembly committee today, would require the state's Department of Public Instruction, or DPI, to make schools' financial data more easily accessible. That would be accomplished via an online digital portal, where anyone would be able to drill down to find specific financial information. The legislation currently has no Democratic co-sponsors. It previously earned the approval of the state assembly, but died in the Senate when last year's legislative session ended early. Senator Mary Felskowski, a Republican from Irma and one of the bill's co-sponsors, says the proposal wouldn't place any additional strain on school districts as they already report all the relevant data to the DPI. This is information that DPI already collects from school districts, and there will be no new reporting requirements for our schools. Felskowski says the bill also takes into account input from the DPI. At its core, our bill is about transparency and access and about every taxpayer, parent, teacher, reporter, school board member, and legislator who has at one point or another found our school funding data difficult to comprehend. Exactly what financial info the portal would provide is still up in the air. For the legislation, it could include info on pension and health care costs, pupil transportation, and school administration, among many other categories. The bill calls for an 11-person committee to hash out those details. That committee would provide a recommendation on the exact form and content of the portal by 2023. The portal would also collect data from charter schools, with the exception that, quote, doing so is feasible without collecting any additional information from independent charter schools solely for this purpose, unquote. The legislation earned near-unanimous support from the Assembly's Government Oversight Committee today, with Representative Jody Emerson, a Democrat from Eau Claire, as the lone vote against. Speaking with WORT after the committee's meeting, Emerson said she was open to changing her vote if the legislation gets to the floor. But she says the current version of the proposal was rushed through committee without being fully fleshed out. I, I find it ironic that we're dealing with the bill about transparency, but in such a rushed manner. 
it's really unusual for us to have a hearing and an executive vote the same exact day on the same bill. I might change my vote when it comes to the floor, um, but the fact that it is so fast-tracked through the committee process um, is always a concern for me. The Senate version of the bill heads to committee tomorrow. Also during their meeting today, the Oversight Committee approved a piece of legislation banning training involving critical race theory for Wisconsin state and local government employees. That bill, which passed committee 6-3 along party lines, is companion legislation and functionally identical to a bill that seeks to bar the teaching of critical race theory in Wisconsin schools. Reporting for WORT News, I'm Jonah Chester. As federal lawmakers work on a budget reconciliation package championed by the Biden administration, supporters say it would bring long-term investments in key areas, including for caregivers. They say public support in states like Wisconsin should compel Congress to adopt the plan. Here's Mike Mullen of the Wisconsin News Connection. New polling data from a dozen states, including Wisconsin, show public support for a key part of the Biden administration's economic agenda. Groups that advocate for caregivers hope it translates into action. According to the left-leaning data for progress, 67% of likely Wisconsin voters backed the administration's Build Back Better initiative being hammered out in Congress. Supporters say the budget reconciliation package would address investment shortfalls in many areas, including for people who work as caregivers. Robert Craig with Citizen Action of Wisconsin says boosting caregivers' wages would help throughout the state. All of Wisconsin, and especially the areas that lack a lot of good living wage jobs, like uh, rural areas. The administration is asking Congress to invest $400 billion to expand access to home and community-based care for the nation's aging population and people living with disabilities. Aside from Republican opposition, the $3.5 trillion package faces pushback from business groups including the U.S. Chamber of Commerce. But Mary Kay Henry of the Service Employees International Union says opponents shouldn't overlook the new polling data. She says it points to demand for policymakers to carve out better futures for Americans struggling to achieve economic stability. And in red states, blue states, purple states, investing in care jobs is an urgent priority and is broadly popular among Republicans, independents, and Democrats alike. For Wisconsin, the poll found 83% of likely voters backing investments in long-term care under the Biden plan. A majority also backs how the plan is paid for, including 76% of respondents who say they support increasing the capital gains tax on wealthy Americans. Mike Moen, Wisconsin News Connection. Find our rate trust indicators to support transparency and accuracy at publicnewsservice.org. The time is now 6.17 and you're listening to the live local news on WORT. Each fall, Dane County leaders hash out the county's spending plan for the following year. The process begins in earnest at the beginning of October when County Executive Joe Parisi releases his executive capital and operating budgets. 
For more on the budgeting process and how community members can get involved in it, our producer Jonah Chester spoke with Dane County Board Chair Annalisa Eicher. So, Dane County is uh, poised to begin its budgeting process in earnest here in the next couple weeks. Y'all at the County Board of Supervisors are already conducting departmental budget hearings, or have been over the course of this past week or so. Now, can you give me a basic walkthrough on what the timeline for the Dane County budget looks like? I know, like I mentioned, you have begun departmental hearings here recently, but as I understand it, the the budgeting process really doesn't begin in earnest until we get Executive Joe Parisi's uh, executive budget budget here in the next couple of weeks. Take me from there. Yeah. So um, as you mentioned, um, last night, uh, Monday night and last night, we actually uh, held our departmental hearings that we heard from both the public and from our department heads about what they were interested in seeing the county executive introduce in his budget um, and, and the board include in the budget. And so between now and then, um, the exec's office is going to be, well, between now and October 1st, rather, the exec's office. Uh, is going to be pulling together his budget, and we are expected to receive that on or before October 1st. So once we receive the budget at the board level, we will begin our standing committee review of uh, the agency budgets and then also consideration of amendments. Um, And so this is the point where uh, if there are supervisors who have amendments to the county exec's budget, that they will, you know, have the opportunity to bring those to our standing committees. The same thing, uh, you know, with the supervisors bringing amendments, this is also a wonderful opportunity for the public to attend a meeting and speak on budget issues that they are either in support of um, or, you know, disagree with. So that'll happen, start happening the week of October 4th. And then on October 20th uh, at 6 p.m., we are going to have a public hearing on the 2022 budget. So what was introduced by the exec, we're going to do a public hearing on that so we can hear again from the public and what they like and don't like uh, as part of the as part of the budget. And then after that public hearing, the Personnel and Finance Committee is going to consider the recommendations from the standing committees on the operating and capital budget, and then make a final recommendation to the County Board of Supervisors. And by uh, November 8th, 2021, we'll be starting our budget deliberation. The county is sort of in an interesting position because when we talk about the city of Madison doing its budget, it primarily just has to worry about the city of Madison and what the city of Madison needs. Obviously, when the county is drafting your budget, I have to assume there's a lot of back and forth between you all at the county government level and Dane County's various municipalities and towns. What does that back and forth look like during the process? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, Dane County has, uh, you know, working relationships with all of our municipalities, uh, you know, from the size of the city of Madison to our smaller communities uh, across the county. And so there are, you know, any number of programs and initiatives that, you know, are county-based that support work um, or work in partnership with work being done with our municipalities. You know, there's, you know, any number of conversations that happen. We engage with the city and villages association as well as the town's association Um, and they you know have at times testified in support and against certain measures that the 
uh, exec has put in the budget, uh, and you know they you know actively participate in the public process as well. But you're, you're right; we we do have to consider the entire county uh, when we're working on the county budget. Now, on the other side of that coin, how does the county work with the state? Because I have to assume some money's coming from the state into the county. Y- y'all are in sort of a middle position between municipalities and the state. So, what does that look like? We are sort of in the middle, um, and uh, you know, we do receive um, you know a number of uh, funds from the state to run certain programs within the county. Um, this is particularly true for our human services department. Um, things in the, uh, you know, family court to an extent, some land and water. You know, we have uh, incredible staff across the county who work with the state agency staff on ensuring that we have the right numbers to support the right positions um, and all of those details. And so much of that is, you know, handled at at the state level. And as we review the budget, we'll obviously know because it'll be delineated as far as if positions are being funded by the state and a certain department versus, you know, if they're just funded by, you know, the county or if they are joint funded. So, you know, we, it, it's about communication and relationships and, and our county staff do an incredible job with that. So we've already talked about city and state. Let's go ahead and look at federal too while we're at it. You know, um, this year and then last year as well, local governments across the state and frankly across the country received a lot of a lot of funding and a lot of financing from the federal government through its various coronavirus relief programs. Uh, and I get this might not become immediately apparent until you really dive into the numbers and get into the budgeting process here in the next couple months. But do we have any idea how those federal funds are going to impact the county's budgeting process over the course of uh, the next few weeks to months? Yeah, we do. So a couple of the um, programs um, and initiatives that have been announced by the executive and the board do lean on and utilize, you know, funding from the American Rescue Plan, you know, that have been sort of designated to support funding in the budget. And so, you know, we have these funds, um, you know, they're allowing us to, you know, make key investments in our community and in our infrastructure in the county uh, that are that are part of the, the budget process. And I think, you know, like, as you said, that once we get the exec budget, some of that will be a little bit more clear. But, you know, we have, uh, we already have a number of initiatives that, you know, have designated ARP funding to them that are part of our budget, you know, and, and will be part of the budget process moving forward. Sort of along that same vein there, is there anything that the county supervisors have been discussing with Executive Parisi or that uh, county leaders in general have been discussing that will find its way into the upcoming budgets that you're particularly excited about? Any programs that have been in the works that you'd like to highlight? Sure. So there's, um, you know, the the county board has, you know, I think continuously throughout the, the pandemic and particularly at the personal and finance level have, you know, continued to reiterate our, our priorities. And one of those, you know, which is, I think, on a lot of folks' minds uh, is affordable housing, meaning basic needs, food security, food access, uh, things like that. Um, we've seen folks struggle, you know, with that in the last uh, 18 months or however long it is that we've been in this pandemic. You know, we also, you know, continue to support investment in our natural resources, you know, continue to support investment in our county workforce who have done incredible things, you know, in keeping our programming and our our county working 
serving the community uh, during the pandemic. And so really it's, you know, a lot of it is, is, is people focused and, you know, we have, I think, a, a unique ability to, to make some investments there. The other pieces, you know, that I think are, you know, sort of got started in the last year and, you know, were big themes in, in the budget that was introduced in 2020 um, and has been executed through this last year are the, the concepts of, you know, a community justice center and a triage and restoration center. And so I think we'll, you know, also be looking at how do the next steps of making those a reality in Dane County fit into our our budget process for 2022. Annalise, thank you so much for, for joining me today. Before I let you go for the afternoon, is there anything else you want to add to the record about the, the process, about how folks can get involved, or anything we just haven't had a, touch, uh, a chance to touch on here today that you think folks should be aware of? You know, I would just ask that if folks have thoughts and opinions on the on the county executive's budget, once it's introduced, that um, you take the opportunity to engage with the county board of supervisors. Due to the pandemic, we are going to be virtual, but you know, there's a lot of ways to to participate and to make sure that you know your voice is heard, whether that's through attending a standing committee hearing or our public hearing on the 20th of October, or even just sending us an email. Um, and our emails on the county website. So we, we, we truly appreciate those who engage with us during the budget process because it makes, you know, our budget and our services that much better. Um, and thank you for the opportunity to talk about our budget process today, Jonah. It's my pleasure. Annalise, thank you so much for, for joining me today. I, I appreciate it. Absolutely. Thank you. Annalise Eicher is the chair of the Dane County Board of Supervisors. And you're listening to Handcrafted Local News here on WORT. Stay with us. We've got a lot more coming at you in the second half of the show. We'll examine the dearth of district attorney candidates during the last year's elections. We'll look back at the headlines from September of 1961. And looking forward, we've got a warm-up coming at us over the weekend and into next week. I'll tell you all the details I know about that. So stay tuned. But first, we'll take another break and check back in with the BBC for a bulletin of headline news from around the world. Stay tuned. The time is now 6.32 and you're listening to the local evening news on WORT. I'm your host, Robert McClure. Thanks for staying with us for the second half of the show. District attorneys are some of the most powerful players in local politics. As their respective county's top prosecutor, they hold the power to charge or not charge those accused of everything from vandalism to murder. But in 2020, only about 10% of Wisconsin's district attorneys faced a challenger in an election. That lack of competition means less turnover and accountability in one of the most powerful seats in local politics. In this archival interview, which originally aired in June, our producer Jonah Chester spoke with PBS Wisconsin's Will Keneally to unpack Wisconsin's dearth of district attorney candidates. 
So you just authored a piece that takes a look at non-competitive district attorney races across the state. And I should add that uh, off the top that that is a collaborative reporting project between uh, PBS Wisconsin, Wisconsin Public Radio, essentially Wisconsin Public Media. Now, during the November 2020 election, a number of district attorney seats went uncontested. And in fact, if we look back over the course of 2020 as a whole, only about seven of the 71 DA seats here in Wisconsin were contested, four in the November general and three in the partisan primary. So an easy but somewhat tough question right here off the top. Uh, why the why the dearth of candidates? You know, district attorneys, for those who don't know, are powerful positions that wield a lot of influence over criminal justice policy and proceedings in their respective counties. You know, that alone theoretically would attract at least some challengers, hypothetically. Right, exactly. It's kind of multifaceted. So I'll give you kind of a couple of the reasons off the top. First and foremost, it's tough to run in elections, right? You have to either front cash yourself to actually run in an election or you have to raise it, that's often a barrier for people um, who say, wow, I have to, you know, run, uh, get voters to support me to have this job. The other thing is, it's a really hard job too. A lot of the DAs that we spoke to, um, we're kind of talking about this secondary trauma. Um, it's, it's a job where you deal with people in really tough circumstances. Um, so to kind of open yourself up to want to bring that upon yourself. It takes a very specific person um, is kind of what the days we were talking to um, were saying. I mean, you can get woken up at three in the morning, um, have to jump to a call of somebody dealing with probably the worst day of their life. I know from reading your reporting, there's also the kind of lure of private practice. You know, a district attorney, while it is a powerful elected position, is a, it is a public sector job, and people who might be good district attorneys are often lured away by private practice and the the big money they make there. That's right. So um, from speaking to some of these DAs, they say, certainly closer to the legal profession than I am, they say that uh, some of these private practice law firms, they want to see some trial experience. So what's an easy way to do that is become a prosecutor. So you get some of these people right out of law school who really want that trial experience, um, who will sign up in the DA's office um, to get that trial experience under their belt um, and then take that to private practice. There's some other kind of potential benefits for an attorney to maybe consider like a private practice versus being a DA, being a state prosecutor or being a prosecutor within the state. The pay's better, certainly. The DAs are capped per county, based on their population, they're capped at a certain salary level per county. And they're also kind of locked in geographically. A private practice attorney can travel anywhere in the state to conduct their practices, while DAs have to live in the area on which they want to serve. Um, also, to some extent, they have to live in that area to be familiar with the voters, um, to be able to kind of make their case when they run for office. What are the detriments of that? Why is that an issue when a district attorney fills a seat for, let's say, 10 years un uncontested? So in kind of like a, a broader sense, um, low turnover means that uh, the status quo is going to remain basically um, kind of an essential level. So when you have um, fewer people turning over in the prosecutor's office, you have kind of a traditional view of prosecution. Lanny Glenberg, uh, a UW law professor that we spoke to um, for this reporting, was talking about um, you have this kind of connotation of, you know, somebody commits a crime, 
you evaluate to the extent to which that crime needs to be punished, and then you go ahead and punish that crime. That's a very traditional way of looking at prosecution. When you have higher turnover um, in these positions, in these offices, you open yourself up to certainly people who will bring in kind of new ideas and bring in kind of perhaps a a new form of uh, looking at prosecution where you might see more diversions to like a drug court or other court alternatives or um, the plea deals might look a little bit different than more traditional prosecutor. So not necessarily, you know, it's very subjective how you view uh, that kind of traditional uh, form or a sense of prosecution where it's, you know, you have the crime, you punish the crime, but low turnover will kind of hold on to these traditional um, views on prosecution. So is that the, and this this is, I guess, asking you to wax poetic as opposed to the particulars of your reporting, <laughs> but uh, is that why traditionally district attorneys are perceived as more conservative? Uh, you know, here in Dane County, Ishmael Ozan, the Dane County district attorney, has faced a lot of pushback from protests and community activists. Uh, but I mean, ultimately, he has no he has no real incentive to change his his line because he faced no competitor in the November election. So is that lack of a turnover why prosecutors and district attorneys tend to be more conservative? So that's actually a really good point um, they bring up for two kind of specific facets. So broadly, the district attorney office is a partisan office, right? It's in these fall elections. Um, kind of juxtaposed against the presidential elections down ballot from that. And so there are a lot more Republican DAs than Democratic DAs. There are 41 Republican DAs in the state to 23 Democratic DAs, also seven independent um, district attorneys. But kind of what that means is because it's a county office, we have more counties in rural areas. Um, so if you translate that to, say, um the state assembly or state senate, Milwaukee has many more seats in the state assembly, state senate than like the singular Milwaukee County um, would make you think there would be. So kind of broadly, you know, if you look across the states, I don't know necessarily if you want to make the comparison between Republicans and conservatism, but there are more Republican DAs in the state. The other thing that you bring up with um, Ishmael Ozan And I did some reporting kind of earlier on with uh, Michael Gravely out of Kenosha with the Jacob Blake decision. When you have district attorneys who are making these very high-profile charging decisions in police shootings, for example, not only do they have their own sensibilities, their own discretion on whether they want to bring the case or not, but um, especially Michael Gravely this past January when he was making his decision in the Jacob Blake shooting, He brings up the fact that he's bound by kind of professional ethics. So in a lot of these instances, um, a DA will approach the case, say, okay, you have a police officer who has shot, in this case, Jacob Blake, or in Dane County, perhaps Tony Robinson. You have a police officer who who has shot somebody. What is going to be the bar that I have to bring to criminal court to prove that they have done so? unlawfully. Um, In the Kenosha example, did so kind of not out of self-defense. And so for Michael Gravely in that case, he said, you know, I may, it may be a horrible shooting. It may be, you know, something that I want to, you know, pursue further. But in a criminal court, 
I can't meet this bar that I need to um, to show that the officer did not act in self-defense. So it, it's a combination of, you know, perhaps like a little bit of a conservatism baked into just how the criminal justice system works. It, it's a high bar for a prosecutor to um, have to overcome to make these, uh, to prove these cases in a criminal court. So is anything being done by um, by lawmakers and politicians, either at a county level in each of these district attorneys' districts or at a state level in the Capitol building to address these non-competitive races? Is there any, uh, are there any steps being taken to incentivize people to maybe move away from the private sector and into the public sector? One of the things that's working at the state level, and this comes from my companion reporting um, my colleague Bridget Bowden over at WPR, she did some reporting on this at the state level. They're hoping to kind of change how district attorneys operate under a pay schedule. So as I mentioned before, district attorneys get paid um, essentially by the population for the counties that they serve. That's very different than uh, a lot of other, in this case, state employees, because the state government actually pays the DA's salaries. So an assistant DA who is working underneath an elected district attorney can actually, in some cases, earn a higher salary than their elected boss. Very different than other officials in the criminal justice system, like judges, for example, where there's a flat pay scale across the entire state. So there's an effort to make the district attorneys have a solid flat pay scale across the entire state in an effort to, you know, certainly give them a raise. And so this would be a blanket pay scale that's at least as high as an assistant DA um, would be paid after they progress through, you know, the merit-based promotions um, that they need to do. That will have the side effect, um, the head of the Wisconsin DA Association says, will have the side effect of encouraging, you know, young or experienced attorneys to seek this office and also to perhaps stay in the office as well if it, there's a financial incentive. The other thing is some of the rural counties, they don't have a, a deep bench of licensed attorneys to pull from. A DA has to be a licensed attorney. So to encourage some of these people to uh, go out into the rural counties in Wisconsin um, to fill some of these district attorney positions from experienced attorneys. All right, I've been joined on the other end of the line by Will Keneally, a reporter with PBS Wisconsin. Will, thanks so much for taking time out of your day to chat with me. Thank you so much for having me, Jonah. Really appreciate it. And from there, on to the weather. Last week, you might remember, I was expressing delight that September had turned up temperate and seasonable after a very warm couple of weeks there at the end of August. And uh, perhaps I shouldn't have said anything because September is now about to embark on its own heat wave, uh, mellower and uh, quite probably uh, easier on us given the time of year now with the approaching equinox. But we're still likely to see temperatures run well into the 80s as we get into the weekend and on into next week at a time when 70 is the average high temperature. The records, incidentally, are up in the upper 80s to around 90 at that time of year. I don't think we'll quite approach record temperatures. We'll see. No indication of anything like a heat wave just yet on the water vapor image of North America that's linked on the WORT weather webpage. But if you have a look at it this evening, you can see Tropical Storm Nicholas 
Briefly, a hurricane as it made landfall a couple days ago, pounding the coasts of Texas and Louisiana after that with heavy rains as it now starts to curl eastward along the Gulf of Mexico, uh, tying up a lot of the moisture down there. And what little moisture is remaining to the west and north of that feature is getting intercepted by the cold front that... Well, it sat over us through much of Sunday night and Monday, producing intermittent thunderstorms before finally passing southeast early yesterday. That boundary is now lying from about southern Missouri, east and northeastward up the Ohio River Valley. So in any case, we have pretty good blocking for moisture return as the big surface high pressure cell, which is currently over us, and centered roughly around the Quad Cities begins to push off to the east tomorrow, and that will back our winds southerly for an extended period. The water vapor shows largely zonal or west-to-east trajectories in the upper winds across the continent, pretty much everywhere south of the Canadian border, with just a little more amplitude north of there. And that general west-to-east regime extends well westward into the Pacific Ocean, uh, if you have a look on the wider-scale satellite view. So no visual indications of any major changes ahead. But I guess that's why we have computer models doing the large-scale prognosticating. And all of them agree on significant amplification over the continent between now and next Monday with a fairly deep upper trough developing along the west coast over the weekend and then ejecting east and northeastward from there. A nearly closed-off mid-level circulation will undevelop within that trough when it's over the northern plains early next week. And that closure is going to delay the uh, trough's passage to our west and northwest and north uh, through the ensuing couple of days, holding warm and by then more tropical air over us, uh, perhaps even out through Wednesday of next week. So uh, warmer than normal for a while yet, though uh, we'll start to be a little less warm as the clouds and eventually rains move in as we get out into next week. Otherwise, though, the only precipitation chance we're likely to see before next Tuesday would be on Friday this week when a weakening cold front will waft in here from the northwest. The high-resolution short-range models are showing that boundary lighting up uh, with very uh, light precipitation, probably in a couple of rounds on Friday. But the front should lift back convincingly north on Saturday, and after that we'll just be warm and clear for the ensuing couple of days. But back to tonight, any remaining cumulus out there should be dissipating and skies will remain clear through the overnight hours with a low temperature in the mid-50s on near calm winds backing lightly southeast by dawn. Tomorrow will be sunny with just passing high clouds and a high temperature in the upper 70s on southerly winds which will come up to about 8 to 12 miles per hour by mid-afternoon. Passing clouds may start to increase then overnight. I don't think we'll see very much cloud cover uh, with a low temperature in the low 60s on lighter southerly winds. Uh, Friday, the clouds are likely to increase more, though I think we'll see a fair bit of mixed sun as well. The models are currently showing perhaps one round of light precipitation in, say, the earlier mid-morning hours sometime, and then perhaps another one in the evening or overnight hours uh, going into Saturday. Temperatures will reach the upper 70s on Friday. That may vary a little bit, depending on how much cloud cover we do see. Winds will be lightly southwest that day. Uh, perhaps varying northwest or north late day or in the overnight if that front actually clears us to the south for a while. Temperatures overnight will be in the 60-degree range. And Saturday should see winds backing southeast and south again as the front goes north with clearing skies and a high temperature around 80. Again, that will be somewhat cloud-dependent. 
will be in the low 60s then overnight and into the upper 80s, I think, on Sunday on stronger southerly winds, probably in similar temperature territory Monday, possibly even Tuesday if we don't see a lot of cloud cover yet. It is currently 70 degrees at the station on Bedford Street. The dew point temperature is 40. Uh, just a few high base cumulus left around the area, up at about 7,000 feet, otherwise clear. Winds are out of the north, uh, very light, 3 miles per hour, and the barometer has uh, been fairly steady over the past several hours. It's at 30.02 inches of mercury currently. Good musical choice, Ken. The time is now 6.50 and you're listening to the live local news on WORT. We go now to 60 years ago this month when the city and university were grappling with racial bias. The school population was exploding and a flamboyant entertainer came to town. Here's Stu Levitan with this week's Madison in the 60s. They melt into a dream Madison in the 60s, September 1961. In mid-September, urban renewal of the green bush goes into high gear as the Madison Redevelopment Authority approves a land acquisition policy of paying the higher of two appraisals and sets purchase offers for 121 triangle parcels. It quickly buys its first property in the triangle, an income property at 120 South Lake Street owned by former Greenbush resident Peter Vitale for $13,000. But MRA Director Roger Rupnow now realizes that warnings he's heard about racial discrimination affecting the neighborhood's black residents who need to relocate are true. At a September luncheon, he tells the Madison Board of Realtors that MRA officials, quote, have been amazed at how many times realtors have told them certain neighborhoods were off limits to blacks. And he pleads with the realtors to show houses to black buyers in those non-traditional areas and to stop checking with neighbors. But the president of the Board of Realtors says that's not likely to happen. No matter what our moral convictions are, Realtor President Vern Halley says, when a colored person purchases a house next door, it's going to have economic ramifications. He insists that he personally opposes the unofficial policy of realtors alerting neighbors about the possibility of a black person moving in next door, but says the board has no official policy on the widespread practice. At just about the same time, production quietly begins on a university film intended to expose racial discrimination in the rental housing market, as Stuart Honish, an instructor in the Bureau of Audiovisual Instruction, begins secretly filming a group of black and white actors posing as would-be renters as they respond to apartment listings around Madison. 
Over the next four months, he records at least 13 incidents of landlords lying to black apartment seekers about unit availability. The film of these undercover housing discrimination tests, called To Find a Home, is produced by UW Extension in conjunction with the Madison Citizens Committee on Anti-Discrimination in Housing. Lloyd Barbie, president of the Wisconsin NAACP, but acting only as chair of the Citizens Committee, raises 3000 of the film's $4,000 budget. After Hanish and Barbie explain the project and the use of hidden microphones and telephoto lenses, Bureau of Audiovisual Instruction Director Professor Frederick A. White and Extension Dean L.H. Adolfson provide the final funding. A rough cut is expected to be available early in 1962. And the UW Board of Regents is grappling publicly on how to balance bucks and bias. While it considers whether to accept a $100,000 bequest from the late Ida B. Altimus of Stoughton to help, quote, worthy and needy Gentile Protestant students, it learns to its chagrin that it also has bequests pending for students of, quote, backward colored minority races and, quote, Caucasian Christian students of unqualified loyalty to the United States, and that it already administers bequests specifically restricted to, quote, needy Protestant Christian high school students of the Caucasian or white race, a Jewish girl in economics, students able to speak one of the Scandinavian languages, students whose thoughts and actions are motivated by a Christian character, and students of Negro blood. That's the scholarship provided in the bequest of Senator William Freeman Vilas. Paul Brynus, the incoming chair of the UW Socialist Club, tells a packed trip commons of his experiences as a freedom rider and what happened after he was arrested on July 19th in Jackson, Mississippi and sent to Parchman Farm, where he served 21 days before he was released on bail pending appeal. Brynus says that his group was not beaten or molested, but had no mattresses or toilet paper of any kind and spent their time singing freedom songs and playing chess with pieces made out of bread. And the university is dealing with off-campus bias as well, as the Mayor's Commission on Human Rights rules that the landlord at 540 West Mifflin Street was engaging in racial discrimination when he evicted a black UW economics instructor and his wife from a flat where they planned to stay. Mr. and Mrs. Marshall Hall, just returned from his native Jamaica, said they had permission from a UW colleague who was student teaching in Pennsylvania, but the elderly landlord accused him of trespassing and reportedly said he, quote, wanted no truck with colored people. As members of the UW Student Council for Civil Rights help the Halls move their furnishings, the landlord's son denies that his father is racially prejudiced. The mayor's commission, which has no enforcement power, asks the UW Housing Bureau to take the property off the list of approved student housing until the landlord commits to non-discrimination. A racial milestone in the Madison school system, as William Willie Taylor becomes Madison's first black teacher teaching physical education at Silver Spring School on the South Side. He's one of 290 new teachers hired to help a record 24,337 pupils, an increase of almost 3,200 over 1960. A little more than 1,900 have come due to two East Side annexations. The remaining 1,200 reflect the continuing post-war baby boom. 
the East Side and West Side high schools each have 1,400 students. Madison Central, only 700. The school board also opens the brand new Glenn W. Stevens Elementary School on Rosa Road for kindergarten, second, and fifth grades. The school is named in honor of the sitting president of the school board, attorney Glenn W. Stevens, and a record enrollment at the UW as well, 19,721. With many more on the way, the university acts to ease the housing crunch by completing the purchase of the properties for the first units of the new Southeast dormitories. The regions pay $120,000 for four properties on West Johnson, West Dayton, and Clymer Streets. Relief could soon come for downtown merchants as the city parking utility begins the process to buy three parcels on West Gorham and West Gilman Streets, just east of State Street, for a surface parking lot to accommodate 60 cars. The utility also takes step to turn the surface lot on Lake Street into a full ramp. And on the 28th, flamboyant entertainer Liberace has a hearty steak dinner and a nap at the modest home of his father and stepmother, Salvatore Sam and Zona Liberace, 1106 East Johnson Street, before his well-reviewed, near-capacity show at the Orpheum Theater. Sam and Zona are former musicians with the Madison Civic Orchestra on French horn and cello, respectively. And that's this week's Madison in the 60s. For your award-winning, vaccine-taking, mask-wearing, hand-washing WRT News Team, I'm Stu Levitan. And that does it for our show this evening. Thanks for listening to WRT's Live Local News at 6. Special thanks to feature contributor Stu Levitan. Jonah Chester produced the newscast this evening, and Ken Brady was our on-air engineer. Shelly Pittman is the news director at WORT, and I'm your host, Robert McClure. Stay up to date with the WORT Local News Podcast. Subscribe on iTunes Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever else you get your podcasts. Stay tuned next for a query. That'll be followed by This Way Out at 7.30, and we'll be back in your ears tomorrow night at 6 with tomorrow's news. Until then, good night. WORT 89.9 FM, Madison.